0: Our text is from verses 36 to 44, and we'll just begin by reading it. So when you find it, Matthew 24, verse 36. This is our Lord speaking to his disciples. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour... So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect now in this passage jesus has been asked by his disciples two questions and you'll see them in verse 3 this is setting the stage for where we're going this morning up in verse 3 you see that they ask two questions that are begun with two interrogatives, when and what. You see those? Those might be two words to underline. The first question, when, when will these things be? That is, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that was just predicted in verses 1 and 2. When will these things be? The second question that they ask is, What will be the sign of your coming, your parousia, your appearing? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I've acknowledged all along that there are disagreements um, in this passage as to whether Jesus answered that first question at all. That is, whether he said anything about the events that would lead up to the destruction of the temple In 70 AD, there are further uh, disagreements about when he started to answer the second question, if he did so, um, about uh, what would be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. And there are disagreements about how much his answer to those two questions are or are not intermingled in the flow of this text. So I want to first off just acknowledge the disagreements by good and careful scholars. But I will say this, that while I think the questions themselves are, are probably intertwined and, and possibly even sort of entangled in the disciples' minds, that m- my understanding anyway is that Matthew records how Jesus really addressed both of these questions, and he did so in very careful um, ways that are spelled out in the text, the way Matthew has structured it. He answers the first question and then he answers the second question just in the way that they've asked it. Now, up until this point, up until verse 36, he's been really addressing the first question about the destruction of the temple and when these things will take place. They've asked him that. And he has given them a sign of. A sign, he says, a sign of his coming, and that is, we looked at last week or a couple of weeks ago, that is a sign of his coming, not down to the earth, but his coming to his throne, his heavenly enthronement, and there is a sign of his heavenly coronation, which would happen upon his ascension to the throne, to the right hand of the throne of God. That sign is a shift away from the nation of Israel to the nations of the earth culminating in the destruction of the temple and all of the Old Testament types and shadows. That's the sign of the Son of Man, that he is, in fact, enthroned in the heavens. Now, there are elements of that sign that that are um, outlined in the book of Matthew in particular and in other places in the Gospels, such as the Israelite cities hearing and, in fact, rejecting the gospel. Jesus said, you will not have gone into all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So the Israelite cities will hear and reject the gospel. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh with the attendant sign of tongue speaking. That would be part of this sign that Christ is, in fact, in heaven, ruling over his kingdom in the new age, the third element of the sign is that the gospel will begin to be proclaimed wholesale to the nations, to the Gentiles, and ultimately that Jerusalem itself will be sacked and that the temple will be destroyed, and this will be an end, as it were, to the old system and the beginning of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in his end time uh, enthronement in heaven. These are the signs, Jesus said, that you will know, that will confirm your faith, that will vindicate everything that I've been telling you all of this time about how I am the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament was prophesying and pointing forward to. Here it is. I've come. This is my testimony. So when will all of these things take place? Jesus summarizes the time frame in verse 34 when he says, I say to you truly, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus has been dealing with all of that up through verse 34, 35. And now in verse 36, he seems to be transitioning to answering the second question that they asked up in verse three, which was about his coming, that is his parousia, his appearing. Right? He's up into heaven. He's obscured from our view. When will he appear? That is the question. And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So Jesus is going to begin to deal with those, that question. And, um, of course, there is continued disagreement. Just like some people don't see any reference to, um, past events in verses four to 35, they view all of that as yet future for us about the second coming. So there are some people who view verses 36 and following still as a continuation of talking about the events leading up to 70 AD. Um, I think there are several really compelling reasons though to see verse 36 as the the transition between the answer to the first question and the answer to the second question. In fact, what I would do uh, is what I did in my Bible, draw a little squiggly line or some sort of little, you know, space between verses 35 and 36 so that it just sort of jumps out at me. Or maybe a better way to do it would be to take a yellow highlighter and to highlight the first couple of words, well, not the first couple, but, but a couple of the words in verse 36... Uh, Actually, let me see. Maybe it is the first couple. Yes, the first two words. Right. But concerning. This is the first reason that I think it's important to see verse 36 as a transition. These are the words that are often used in the scripture as as an indicator to say, "Okay, now let me talk about another subject. And often, for example, Paul uses these words, peri day" are the Greek words. He uses them again and again, for example, in the letters to the Corinthians to, um, to talk about the fact that he's switching subjects. And often he's switching subjects to address a new topic that they had asked him about previously. And so he says, now concerning and then he'll bring up their question and then he'll give the answer. I think that's exactly what our Lord is doing here. Now concerning this, but concerning this. So there's a clear shift here in the terminology. Uh, also, not only does verse 36 read like an introduction to something new, but verses 34 and 35 read like a conclusion to something that has being is being wrapped up. Truly, truly I say to you, verse 34, this generation will not pass until all these things take place, what? All of these things that I've been talking about, everything leading up to this this point, this whole sweep, uh, this is a sort of grand conclusion about the timing of these things. And then uh, to affirm the truthfulness of what he says, he says in verse 36, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is true, what I'm telling you. All of these things will happen within your lifetimes, within this generation. And in fact... That's exactly what happened, which is an amazing uh, confirmation of the truthfulness of our Lord Jesus. Um, In addition, I've noted that the Lord's um, comments in verses 4 to 35 about the Jewish war, he refers to them again and again as those days four different times in that section he talks about those days those days those days those days but when you get to verse 36 there is a transition now he talks about that day singular verse 42 what day verse 50 a day verse uh, chapter 25 verse 13 uh, the day so there is a shift in the way that he's talking about these periods of time. Then there is also the lack of time markers in this second section. Notice that in the first section, they said, Lord, when is all this going to happen? The, the destruction of the temple and everything. And he said, OK, well, first of all, you're going to see this and this and this. But the end is not yet. Don't think that's the end. And he said, I'll tell you when the end is going to be. It will be before this generation passes away. So there's there's sort of clear time markers uh, about, about these events. But when you get to the second half, notice verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. All right, so there's a distinct lack of time indicators in addition there's also uh, the, the the difference between the the presence or a lack of the presence of warnings warning indicators so for example in the first half leading up to the destruction of the temple jesus said when you see talking to his followers when you guys see the abomination of desolations then flee get out of town run for the hills But in the second half, verse 36 and following, he says that his return will be unexpected. People will be unaware, like the flood of Noah. So there is a presence or lack of warning indicators. And the last reason is the use of the term parousia, the Greek word parousia, which is translated here as coming in verse 36. It's not the same word that was used earlier. In fact, in the first half, He only uses the word parousia once, and that is actually to distinguish the second coming of Christ from those days. In the second half, he uses the term twice to describe the Lord's return, his appearing, his manifestation, which I think is a reference to his glorious appearing at the end of time. So for many of these reasons, I think the most careful Bible expositors see a transition from verse 35 to verse 36. Now, in, in before we have been talking about um, events that for us are in the past, but at beginning in verse 36, we're now beginning to look forward, even for us, to what is yet future, an event that we are still in fact waiting for, which Jesus refers to as that day and hour. That day Day and hour. And it's that day and hour that I want to preach to you about this morning. The Old Testament frequently makes use of that kind of terminology. The day of the Lord is often referred to in the prophets merely as that day. In fact, Isaiah does this by my quick count this last week 45 times. He just says in that day, in that day, in that day to refer to the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord might need some explanation. The day of the Lord refers to any unusual manifestation of God. It is when God has his day, right? Men, kingdoms of the earth, even God's enemies, they may have their day in the sun, so to speak, But God will have his day. And he does. Again and again, God breaks into human history, so to speak, in a way that dramatically manifests his presence, his judgment. But all of these days of the Lord are pointing forward to God's ultimate manifestation of himself. And God's ultimate manifestation of himself in the world, God's ultimate manifestation of himself in the world is what? The Lord Jesus Christ, his son. And the kingdom of God will be manifest when the son comes. Psalm 2, he says, I have set on Zion my son. To be king on my holy hill. But there are two stages of the kingdom of God's son. And I think you'll see this borne out all through the scripture. I'll just show you one place where Jesus kind of talks about it. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, he says that there will be one stage of his kingdom during which the kingdom will come in ways that cannot be what? Observed, There will be kind of an, a less visible manifestation of his kingdom. Christ comes, Jesus came to earth, and when he came, the king was here. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king was killed, buried, resurrected, ascended, enthroned, and his kingdom begun, but his kingdom is coming now in ways that cannot be observed visibly, physically by all of the people of the world. But he says in Luke seventeen twenty four that there is a day when his kingdom will be unmistakable. It'll be like lightning flashing across the sky from one side or the other. So will the son of man be in his day. And Jesus now speaks about that day and that hour. It is the hour when the Lordship of Jesus Christ will be manifest. It will be unveiled when the throne room of heaven will have the screen pulled back and all men will see The Lord Jesus Christ sovereignly ruling upon his throne. That day is coming, he says. The day when what is presently invisible appears. And these are the three main terms used for the second coming of Christ. His manifestation, his appearing, his unveiling. In that day, it will be an epiphany. A sudden realization. But it will be. Too late, it'll be too late in that day to repent, to believe, and to change our ways. Because Jesus says in verse 36 that there will be no signs, no warnings, no advanced knowledge of that hour. Notice verse 36, but, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven or the son, but the father only. And and maybe you it came to your mind. Well, isn't Jesus the son of God? Doesn't isn't he God? Doesn't he know everything that God knows? So how can he say that the son doesn't know? And we have. To, it is important to remember that Jesus Christ is a perfect union of the divine and the human so that he is at once both 100% God and 100% man undivided not mixed um, and that he is speaking here in this place uh, with reference to his human nature and he insists In that respect, that it is the Father alone who knows the time that is ordained for the second coming of Christ. All other speculations are futile and foolish. And I just want to caution you against getting caught up in speculation. Because lots of Christians have for a long, long time. Gotten caught up in the frenzy of speculation about the timing of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, No one knows. Stop trying to figure it out. He'll tell you how to respond to uh, the coming of Christ and the timing of it. I remember a number of years ago, I think I've told you this before, I was traveling um, to a, a conference out in Pennsylvania. And I would rented a car in Philadelphia and was driving up to uh, a smaller town where the conference was to be held. And as I was driving through the countryside, I was flipping through the radio stations, just trying to find something uh, decent to listen to. And I found what appeared to be a, a Christian station. And it was playing just beautiful music. And I began to listen to the music and enjoying that. And after a while, the... Uh, the the call signs came on or whatever the station's identification, and they identified the station as family radio. I thought, well, that sounds nice, family radio. And uh, I don't remember if it was during my listening or later on, I began to just look it up a little bit and uh, came to the realization that the family radio network, this I don't know. This particular network was uh, affiliated with a man by the name of Harold Camping. Now, this was back in the, I don't know, probably the, maybe the nineties. I don't remember how long ago it was. Uh, but so, so some of you may or may not remember it, but in his day, he was a big deal. He was a big deal for a lot of Christians. He began to predict, uh, that the Lord would in fact return and the end of the world would take place in, this was 2011, actually, I was wrong, 2011. And uh, so it wasn't that long ago. And I remember uh, being on the news. Uh, somehow, you know, uh, you hear about these things all the time, but this one made the news and a lot of people were caught up in it. A lot of people were leaving their good Bible preaching churches because they were listening to a very charismatic and in his own way, sort of persuasive personality, On the radio, some people began to sell things that they had and to give their money to this radio ministry. And millions of Christians neglected the care of their own flocks and and the accountability that they had under the the careful preaching of the word of God to follow after um, a date setter. One of a long line that has proved to be futile and, and empty. And I just... Uh, I can't take it for granted that that would never be a temptation for anyone in our assembly. And I want to warn you not to be caught up, not to be consumed. I've seen some amazingly intricate explanations. And some of our minds, you know, the more analytical minds just kind of gravitate to people who you know are charting the the course of the moon and the the length of the jewish days and going back to the calendar and figuring it all out and they can give you an explanation that goes on for 20 minutes and seems incredibly detailed this guy is so smart jesus says don't fall for it no one knows the day or the hour no one knows the time. And by, by the way, don't, don't buy into the idea that, well, we, we don't know the day or the hour, but we can know the month or the week. Jesus is using these terms the way they're often used in the Bible. as a period of time. Nobody knows the time. Nobody knows the timing of the coming of the Son of Man. Only the Father in heaven Jesus says that the coming of Christ, the second coming will be sudden and unexpected. Look at verse 38. It will be, he says in verse 38, like it was before the great flood that covered this earth back in the time of Noah. when people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah went into the ark, they were doing this. Can you imagine that? Having a wedding day, the day before the end of the world as if everything's just going to continue on as it always has been they were completely unaware verse 39 they were unaware jesus says that the flood until the flood came and swept them all away life was going on just life is normal and it is precisely the lack of signs for the second coming of jesus The lack of cataclysmic world events, the lack of dire, dramatic warnings and catastrophes that will, in fact, cause many people, scoffers, to say, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, it's been these thousands of years now. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Think about what it was like in the days of Noah. In Noah's day, the only warning was his preaching. And the only warning of the return of Jesus Christ to judge the world will be the proclamation of the gospel by faithful ministers and evangelists all around the world. Listen to me. The day is coming when God will judge the world by his son. That day is approaching. I don't know how far away it is. I don't know when it will come, but it is coming. This sermon that you are hearing today is your warning. It is the sign. It is the testimony. This reminder that the day. Day of judgment is coming when God will judge every heart. He who knows every thought, every motive, every action and every word. You will stand before him one day and you will give an account. And in that day, no one will be able to say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm as good as it gets. I'm better than the average person. My good works outweigh my bad. Jesus said the standard is this. Be ye therefore perfect as your. Father in heaven is perfect. James says, whoever keeps the whole law but offends in one point, he is guilty of all. The book of Galatians, quoting the Old Testament, says that cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The the, the truth is that measured by the standard that we owe to God, which is perfect. Love and gratefulness and obedience. Every one of us falls short. Every one of us is under the condemnation of the almighty God. And it will be a fearful thing to stand in the day of God's wrath. Except that God in his love has entered into this brokenness. And into our helplessness. And has given himself up as a sacrifice and an offering for sinners. And that Jesus Christ died on the cross and bore the sins of all of those who would put their faith and trust in him and his obedience is reckoned to them, is counted to them as if it were their obedience by the mercy of God, by virtue of God's uniting them to Jesus so that Jesus stands in their place as their substitute. And that mercy of God brings them into union with Christ through faith. And on the basis of their faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, God pronounces them justified, vindicated, already judged in the day of judgment that is yet to come. They're vindicated. And they'll stand before God, and Christ will give Himself for them to be in their place, and God will judge them to be righteous. That is the good news, and it is the only means by which any one of us may escape from the judgment of the Almighty God. And I tell you today that if you forsake your sin and your self-righteousness and confess your sin and confess your faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone, that you will be saved. Today, this sermon, this preaching, this is your warning Jesus says there are no signs in the sky there are no 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 um uh, earthly uh things to 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 wake you up that the day will come when Christ will appear And his appearing will be unexpected. His The timing of his coming is not something that you can prepare for. It's not something that you can say, well, one of these days I'll get my heart right with God. I'll make everything okay before Jesus comes, friend. The moment will come and you will stand before God. It will be like you're sitting in this pew. You're breathing the air here. And the next moment you will be in the presence of the almighty God and stand before his scrutinizing gaze. I urge you today to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that'll set us free and give us any hope in that day to come. When that judgment falls, as it surely will, it will divide humanity right down the middle. I mean, God's judgment will fall like a sword, just cleaving humanity one from the other. He says in verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken And one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one left. Put your mind in the scene. Picture it. Out in the field, father and son harvesting the crops in the late fall afternoon. Or the mother and daughter, or the two sisters, or the two slaves in the same household working the little hand mill, the family's little hand mill in the cool of the evening, and the moment comes, and Christ appears. Then Jesus said, His judgment cuts right down the middle of humanity. You know, I've done a lot of of funerals and been to a lot of funerals through the years, and one of the things that I find almost universally true is that at a funeral, everybody is going to a better place. Uh, If you believe the common uh, ideas that people verbalize. I've never been to a funeral where anybody seems to openly question that. It's as if God is just kind of universally kind to everyone, regardless of their um, position toward him. This is not the teaching of our Lord. His teaching is that the coming of Christ puts a divide right down the middle of humanity. This division sometimes runs right through the middle of a family. Can you imagine? A father separated from a son, a son separated from his mother, a brother separated from a sister. The gospel divides people. Between those who believe and accept the Lord Jesus and those who don't. And one day at Christ's appearing, that judgment will eternally divide people. Which side will you be on? When the Lord Jesus comes in that great day, when all of humanity is sorted out, where will you be in relation to the Lord? Ask that question right now. In that day, it'll be too late. Examine your heart today. Where will you be when God divides humanity? One taken and the other left. Now that terminology, one taken and the other left, is not completely clear what they're taken for where they're taken. So the word can actually be translated to take someone along, like you're taking along a companion. It can also be a reference to taking someone away to, to be judged or condemned. In that way, it's used, in, in fact, later on in this book, Matthew twenty seven twenty seven. 27, 27 uh, they took Jesus away and crucified him. So, it's not exactly clear from the word. It could, it's possible that Christ is saying that he could, he's talking about taking people to himself to accept or to receive them. But I think the context seems to argue the other way. Because the context, the references to the flood of what? Of Noah's day. And what happened in the flood of Noah's day? He used a very similar word earlier. He said, the flood came and swept them all away. And who was left? Noah and his family to enter into the new world that God had made. The new world washed of all of its uncleanness. So that those who are taken away here seems in the context to be a reference to being taken away into eternal judgment. And those who are left are left to enter the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth that God has prepared for those who love him. There is another position or another understanding of these verses, and I want to give it to you this morning, um, that these verses are a reference to what is called the rapture, which is, in, in that view, this is a taking away of believers into heaven. Before seven years of tribulation on the earth. And this is not the classical futurist position, but it is a more modern dispensational view. Um, and I bring it up because it's very popular. Most likely you've um, you've interacted with it, maybe you you've you've you thought this uh for a while or or still believe this um because of the popularity of books like the left behind series we've all heard of that right left behind um the saints are taken to heaven and unbelievers are left behind for a time of great tribulation and there's all kinds of terrible things that happen on the earth um and 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 it's it it's a uh a very popular series some of you probably read it um So I would say this, while while I I do respect and and love many who hold that position, I want to just push back a little bit on that, just for a couple minutes, on, on two fronts. One is this, that I believe that view is built on a faulty hermeneutical foundation, which is just a fancy way of saying that it's built on a basic understanding of how we interpret the Bible um, that I think is flawed. This view demands a fundamental distinction between the nation of Israel and the church and God's plans for Israel, God's plans for the church. Now, I was raised in dispensational circles And have moved away from that. My uh, moving away from that was gradual over the years. And I just want to at least give you a testimony of how it happened with me. It happened with me through many years of studying verse by verse the New Testament and noticing to my surprise how often the New Testament quoted the Old Testament or alluded to the Old Testament. And so I began to do what all good pastors are supposed to do, right? Which is to chase down the references and read them in their Old Testament context. I confess that sometimes I didn't think very deeply about it. And in my early days, I just said, well, that's a quotation from the Old Testament. and I kept on going. But as I got more mature and I trust more mature in my thinking, I began to go back to the Old Testament and to read those. Mm -hmm. those uh, Old Testament contexts, and then to look at how the New Testament writer was using them and how he was applying them and and trying to make sense of that. And uh, what I began to believe was that the New Testament writers were looking at a lot of these Old Testament predictions about Israel, and they were seeing them to be fulfilled in Christ and in his church. And I began to wonder, should I be reading the Old Testament that way? And I started to look to my uh, mentors at that time for answers. And some of the answers came back. No, you shouldn't read the Bible that way. That was for the New Testament writers to read the Bible that way because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. You're not inspired. So you should read the Bible just, you know, in, in 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 as literal a way as possible. Every time it talks about Israel, it must mean the national physical people of Israel. And and so I struggled with that until it really dawned on me that that was, in fact, a presupposition that I was bringing into the process of interpreting the Bible. I was presupposing that I should read it that way. It just the arguments that I heard were like this. Well, that this just makes sense that you should read it that way because if God was trying to communicate clearly, then he must be speaking as literally as possible so that we could understand. But I began to ask myself whether or not I should learn how to interpret the Bible from the Bible itself. This is the way my thinking rolled, Okay. You may or may not be tracking with me, but that's the way my thinking rolled. And I began to try to see more carefully how that interpretation was playing out and to read the Old Testament in the way that I thought the New Testament writers were reading it. And what became apparent to me is that they didn't treat those prophecies literalistically, but they viewed them Christologically. That is, they saw Israel or the chosen people or God's elect as ultimately a reference not to a physical people, but to Jesus Christ. And then through Jesus Christ to all who are united to him. Not by physical descent, but by spiritual union, so that Paul could write things like Galatians 3.29, where he says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, and in fact, heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. But it is this mistaken sense of ongoing fundamental distinction between Israel and the church that drives, it really is the driver of the rapture theology. So if this fundamental interpretational principle is wrong, um, that I think is what leads us to sometimes the wrong conclusions about some of these things like end times events. This is my, this is my take, okay? Um, let me, let me give you a second sort of little pushback on this. And this has to do with the interpretation, what I think is a flawed interpretation of the one key verse, the one main verse in the New Testament that talks about the rapture. And if you grew up in those circles, you could probably name it off the top of your head. First Thessalonians 4, 17. First Thessalonians four seventeen. I think we have it for the uh, screen. Let me put that up. Then we who are alive, that we read it earlier in our Bible reading, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is the most explicit passage in the Bible that talks about the rapture. In fact, this is where we get the term rapture from the Latin term, that's, uh, which is translated in English here, uh, to be caught up to be caught up with the Lord or raptured. Um, Now, the traditional interpretation of this verse says that this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. The dispensationalism views this as something distinct from the second coming that is separated from the second coming of Christ by seven years, where Christ takes believers up to heaven and in heaven transpires the marriage supper of the Lamb, the judgment seat of Christ, while on earth tribulation is taking place. Now, again, I say good, careful Bible-believing people hold that. Some of you may hold that, and that's, that's fine. Um, I do think one thing is clear, and that is the verse talks about the fact that there is some sort of meeting of the Lord in the air, Right? Are we all agreed on that? We will meet the Lord in the air. But I want to ask, what is the nature of that meeting in the air? Well, the dispensational assumption is that we meet the Lord and then he takes us up into heaven. So there's like a U-turn, so to speak. Jesus comes, we meet him, he makes a U-turn and we all go up to heaven. But that word meeting is, in fact, a key word that is used in two other places, only two other places in the New Testament. I want you to see them both. And from that, make your deductions about what's going on in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Two other places where, we're, where there's a meeting that takes place. The first one is very, actually very close to where we are. It's in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, uh, in the first part, Jesus tells this parable that illustrates, in fact, the second coming, which is very Interesting. And it's a parable of 10 virgins at a wedding, Uh, probably something akin to bridesmaids, maybe not exactly like we have bridesmaids today, but sort of like that. And these girls are in this house where there's going to be this great wedding take place, and they're waiting for the groom to come. And the groom has been delayed for some reason, but verse 6 says that at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom. Come out to, that's the word that's used in First Thessalonians 7, 4, 17. Come out to meet him. And so what happens? Those who are prepared, those who are ready, they run out to meet him. They greet the groom, the wedding party. They escort them into the house for the great celebration. And of course, the doors are shut to those who are not prepared. And that's the first use. The second use out of, out of the only three in the Bible is in Acts chapter 28. And in Acts 28, Paul, the apostle, is on his way to Rome. And there he's going to appear before the court of Caesar. Most of you probably remember this. And verse 15 of Acts 28 says that the brothers there, that the brothers, the Christians in Rome, they, when they heard about us, he says, they came out as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns, which is about 30 some miles before you get to Rome. They came out to what? To meet us. And what happens? From there, they escorted Paul back to Rome, And that's where you find him in the next verse. So in both of these cases, what you have is not a meeting with someone in order to go away with him somewhere else. Like you might do when when you say to a friend, hey, we're going to go to this concert downtown. I will meet you at your house and then we'll go from there to the concert. Rather, this is a welcoming, a a meeting to welcome or to receive someone. Like when you invite someone to your home for dinner, and you're looking out the window and you see their car pull up and park on the curb, and you open the door and you come out and you walk out to the curb to greet them, to welcome them, to meet them, to escort them into your house, because you're so glad to see them. In other words, I think that this passage is not referring to our going away to be with Christ in heaven for seven years, but rather our welcoming him, receiving him upon his glorious return at the second coming. Now, all of this together means that to see the that kind of rapture and be taken away into heaven in this statement that one is left Uh, One is taken and another left. To see the rapture in this seems to me to be more of a reading into the text of a theological system that doesn't have a good biblical foundation. Now, in all of this, I I don't want us to lose sight of what is really important in these verses, which is that when Jesus comes... Listen carefully now. When Jesus comes, there is a great divide that takes place among humanity. What this great divide that already exists between those who believe and those who do not becomes visible and apparent and eternal. And the timing of his coming is completely unknown So that people will have no chance to sort of clean up their act before he comes. So the admonition that our Lord gives then is this, verse 42, that we should be alert to be ready for the return of the Lord at any time. Verse 42, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, Jesus said, that if the master or the owner of the house had known what part of the night the thief was going to come, he would have, excuse me, he would have what? He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, Jesus says, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus says, the takeaway is that you should be ready. Be ready. So, how... How can we be ready for an event whose timing is utterly unknown? And the answer is that we have to be ready, what? All the time. All the time. At all times, expectant, waiting. What does it mean to be ready for the Lord, to be awake and alert for his coming? Friends, it means to acknowledge and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, as your master, and to persevere in your faith all the way until your death or until the appearing of the Lord Jesus. It means to continue to repent and to believe and to grow, to not become complacent in your sin, to be watchful and mindful of the danger of false teaching, reevaluating everything by, by the book. It means to be wary of the subtle tactics of the devil that he uses to derail people's faith. It means to be alert and active in prayer. I mean, the real heart of genuine Christianity is prayer. Jesus said, watch and pray so that you would not fall into temptation. It means being careful not to drop into spiritual lethargy and really to evidence a deep lack of faith. It means to live in faith that no matter how long our Lord is delayed before he comes back, that everything that he said will happen will in fact take place. And we live in the confidence of that every day, every moment. It means living every day you have left, however long that is, to the fullest, to the glory of God for all of eternity there's uh there's one of the books of the chronicles of narnia by c.s lewis it's actually my favorite one it's called the silver chair and toward the end of the silver chair the the pevensey kids and uh puddle glum their companion they find themselves captured deep in the dark underworld by a witch the queen of the underworld and she casts a kind of spell on them and causes a drowsiness and a stupor to fall upon them. And in their stupor of mind, she begins to convince them that everything that they thought was true was actually a dream. The sun and the stars, the whole overworld, even the great lion aslan himself all somehow a figment of their fevered imaginations and they begin to slowly get accustomed to this new reality of darkness and mindlessness and it's in fact not until the the pessimistic pessimistic marsh wiggle puddle glum sticks his hand into the fire that he's jolted back into reality and he reminds them of the truths that they know and it all begins to come clear to them and i just think that sometimes you and i need a passage like this as a jolt of reality to remind us of the truthfulness of all that Christ said, of of the, the reality, the true history that is yet to take place, just as surely as the history that God has revealed has already taken place. Because all too often what happens to you and I as we live in this world that denies these things is that we begin to become spiritually drowsy. And even if we would not deny these truths intellectually, we begin to live practically as if they're all just so many stories and fairy tales that we tell each other when we gather together for these story sessions on Sunday mornings. And then we go back into the real world. I love the ending of that book. You'll have to go back and read it. This is getting off track, but but this is what you and I need. We need this Awakening, the spiritual wake up call, as it were. Jesus says, stay alert. Don't be lulled into a spiritual apathy. Don't be lulled into a kind of a blindness, a kind of a stupor that treats the things of God as if they were so many fairy tales and the things of the world as if this was the real thing. It's completely the opposite. What happens is you go out into the world and that's where you get sleepy. That's where you begin to dream and the dreams seem so vivid. They seem so real. And when you come into church on Sunday morning, that's when you wake up. That's when you your eyes are open. That's when God says, be alert, be alert, stay awake. Look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because it will happen just as surely as God is true. And it will happen in a moment that no one can predict. And the only way you'll be ready is that every day you get up and say, this is true. I believe this. This is real. Oh, God, show me. Open my eyes. Help me to see with eyes of faith what I will see one day in the present physical reality. Help me to see it now with eyes of faith. This sermon is a wake up call. This sermon is for you to wake up. Maybe there's some of you that were You came into the service spiritually lethargic. And you've gone through the whole week almost blinded to the things of God. You've gone through the week with everything else big in your sight and God very, very small. The promises of his word seem almost as if they were a fairy tale. This is your wake-up call. Maybe you've lived a blind, apathetic, slumbering existence. I ask you this morning, are you ready for your Lord to return? Is your heart prepared to see him? Is your life being lived for the reality of that day? As if you actually believe that that day will be more real and more lasting and more eternal than Everything, everything you have now and you collect now and you see now and you experience now. I tell you, someday we're going to look back on this day and it'll seem like a fuzzy dream and we'll see more clearly, we'll hear more clearly, we'll taste and smell like we were never alive before. Brothers and sisters, be ready. For that day, every day, right now, today, open your eyes, awaken your heart, and believe these promises of the Lord Jesus. I hope and I pray that these things will sustain us when things become difficult. When we're faced with temptations that we will live in the reality of what Christ has revealed and be waiting for the day when he comes to vindicate his righteous name and the faith of all those who are waiting for him and spending their money as if they're waiting for him and spending their time as if they're waiting for his coming. May the Lord open our eyes. Amen. Heavenly Father, please hear us. Please use these words to have their good effect in us. Let them not return void and empty, but accomplish what you have intended through this preaching today. Pray that what has been faithful to this word would stick and everything else would be forgotten. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.